If you have your Bible, turn to the 17th chapter of John and feel free to look around and see those who don't have Bibles. There's something to be said for self-righteousness. You can look down your nose at them. That's one of the holy places in Scripture. It's the place when you're reading through John, you hit it and you go, oh, or Jesus is praying. Let me give you an exegetical note on the 17th chapter of John. When you start at the 6th chapter of John, you're moving into the Lent of Jesus. In the 6th chapter, there's one of the most, an event so filled with pathos that when you see it, you wince. Jesus is saying some really hard things, and the crowds are beginning to turn their back. And it's hard to keep on singing when the audience has turned its back. And so they're dissipating, they're leaving. And then Jesus turns, and this isn't fake. This is the reality of the incarnation. Jesus looks at his disciples, and there's fear there. There's worry, there's anxiety. And maybe, can you believe it, even insecurity. When the incarnation took place, it wasn't a game. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to play being human. He was lonely the way you're lonely, not to keep you from being lonely. He was afraid in the same way you're afraid, not just to keep you from being afraid. He had to die, just as you have to die. And so it wasn't a game. And in that sixth chapter, he looks at his disciples and he says, are you, are you guys going to leave too? And then old Peter said, what are you, crazy? Where are we going to go? Who's going to love us like you? You have the words of life. Who's going to forgive us the way you've forgiven it? No, we're here, and we're here to the end. And then Jesus, with a great pouring out of love, begins to teach those that he loved the most. And so from the sixth chapter of John, right, almost to the end, Jesus is dealing with us. This is not for pagans. It's not for unbelievers. It's only for believers. And this is where we find the family secrets, the depth of the heart of God for his own people. And then you move to the 17th chapter. You've, uh, you've watched the king wash the feet of his people. You've seen him admonish them. You've seen them teach them and comfort them. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it weren't so, I would have told you. And then you hit the 17th chapter, and you go, whoa, this such a holy place. In fact, when I was thinking about what I was going to be teaching you this morning, I looked at that 17th chapter and I thought, eh, I don't think so. I don't know if I understand it. I don't know if I get it, but I'm going to say some things about it. 
So this morning, we're going to look at the 17th chapter of John. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we're your people. Meet us in this place. May we hear the soft sound of sandal feet. Take your word and put it in our minds that we would not be shallow and superficial Christians. And then, Father, drop it into our hearts that we wouldn't be cold Calvinists. And then put it in our hands and our feet and our vocal cords so that the world might hear the laughter of the redeemed. As always, Father, we pray for the one who teaches. Forgive him his sins, for there are many we would see Jesus and him only. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's a fairly long text, but if the sermon is horrible, at least we have the prayer of Jesus, and that's probably enough. John writes, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify your Son, that the Son might glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave to me, and they have received them. And they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we were, are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. As a side observation, I want you to note that running throughout the prayer is the concern that we love one another. Jesus had said it before. He said that the world might believe. I give you a command, but love one another. And then in this prayer, he emphasizes it over and over again. Do you know how to make sure that your children walk with Christ? Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you concerned that this church grow? How should you do that? Send out teams and beat people over the head with the gospel? No, love one another. I love the church. God help me, I don't know why. I'm a cynical old preacher. And I've been doing this longer than most of you have been alive. Every time a pagan comes to me and says something bad about the church, I'm going to say, you don't know nothing. You have no idea. Listen, if you're, if you're visiting this church this morning, let me give you some advice from the old guy. Leave before you get hurt. We're not nice people. We really aren't. And when we joined this church, we said to the world, we're not nice people. This is insane. We're not gathered here to look down at other people. We're gathered here because we're sinners, terribly needy, desperate for God's grace. If you stay and you can get over us, you'll find the most important family of your life. But if I were you, I'd leave before I got hurt. <laughs> I love the church. God help me. I love Joel Osteen. I wish he wouldn't smile so much. <laughs> I love, I love R.C. Sproul. I pray every day for John MacArthur, and he's gone after me. And I'm just a warm, fuzzy person. I don't know what makes him so ticked. I love John Frame. I love Calvin. 
and Jacob Arminius. I love Augustine. I love the Pentecostals who speak in tongues. I love the dispensationalists and wince when I read their books. I love reformed people. And you know where I got that? I got that from Jesus. And if you want to see revival, you better get it too. Every day of my life, I pray for awakening in the church. And every day of my life, I'm reminded of what Jesus said. Our task is to love one another that they might believe. Our task is that we be one. Now, that's not an institutional oneness. It means that Presbyterians got to love Baptists, even though Baptists are like weeds. They grow everywhere, and you can't get rid of them. We are called as God's people to love God's people. And before you do anything else, ask him for that. I just thought I ought to say that because it's so clear in the prayer. You know, you know something? You can tell a lot about a man or about a woman by listening to them pray. Most of you don't know the name Harold John Ockengay. He was a friend of mine. He was the founder of the National Association of Evangelicals, the World Evangelical Fellowship. He was the first non-family member who was president of Fuller Seminary. He was pastor of Park Street Church. He was a man who, because he lived, the world is different. After Billy Graham had had his crusade in Los Angeles, where the papers had puffed Graham and God did a mighty work, Mr. Graham came to New England at the behest of Harold John Ockengay. Ockengay pled with him to come, and he was on Graham's board and worked with him for years. Dr. Ockengay was unusual. He had a Ph.D. from Columbia. He was a fine scholar. No hair was ever out of place. He always had a tie, and I think he slept in it. And I was with him. I was with him when the Jesus movement happened. That was a wonderful time. If you haven't noticed, I'm as old as dirt. I could die while I'm preaching to you this morning. I am cramming for finals. But every morning I say, God, let me see it one more time. The Jesus movement was as great as the great awakening that took place under Edwards and Whitfield. It was genuine and it was real. And the kids came out of the woodwork all across America. Colleges were having revival. Read Robert Coleman's One Divine Moment. It was a magnificent and wonderful time. And they asked me to come to Gordon College where Ockengay was the president. And they, uh, uh, for their Let's Get Religious Week, and these kids, I mean, long hair, tie-dye shirts, sitting in a gym on the floor, and it was packed out. And they were fun to teach. They were taking notes, and they could hardly wait to serve Christ and to find out what his word said. And sometimes I'd tell jokes, and they had laughed. And I looked on the floor of the gym, and there is Harold John Ockengay, Dr. Ockengay, sitting on the floor with those kids. And he was trying his best because he knew Jesus was doing something. He just didn't know how to get to be a part of it. And so I'd tell a joke, and these kids would laugh, and Dr. Ockengay didn't get the joke. But he'd look around, and, and he'd see everybody laughing, and he would laugh. He'd go, ah, ah. And I wanted to go up and hug him, a man of God. 
I remember a friend who uh, criticized one of his sermons. And Dr. Ockengay, and you never thought, he cried, put his hands uh, on his face and he began to weep. Something else. And I'd heard for years uh, that, uh, that Ockengay had been praying for revival in New England. And, and I'd heard that one time Mr. Graham came up on him and he was under the rug in his study crying out for God to do something for Boston and New England. Now that sounds apocryphal. <laughs> I mean, that is, uh, Dr. Ockengay doesn't get under rugs, okay? Somebody made that up. They meant well, but they made it up and it was a lie. So one time when I was with Mr. Graham, I asked him, I said, Mr. Graham, uh, tell what, I heard a story about you finding Ockengay under a rug. That's not true, is it? Mr. Graham laughed, and he said, yes, it's true. He said, we had one of our meetings one evening, and it was late, and I went back to Park Street Church, and I could hear Ockengay's voice. And I kept trying to follow the place where I could hear his voice, and I got to his study, I opened the door and looked in, and he was under an oriental rug, weeping and crying out for God to bring revival to New England. And I said, well, what did you do? And he said, I was very quiet, and I backed out of his study. You can tell a lot about a man by listening to him pray. John Bechtold is a friend of mine. He was the last missionary out of China and the first missionary back. John's still alive and he's still serving Christ in Taiwan and around the world. John looks like a football player, which he was, big as a house. And when they finally lifted the bamboo curtain, they let Christians come back into China and they let John into China, and uh, uh, he was in the line, and the little Chinese lady was, was filling out forms for people who wanted to go. And one of the questions was, are you a missionary? And so this little lady said, are you a missionary? And John leaned over the desk and said, lady, do I look like a missionary? And she said, oh, no, no, and she put no. And he didn't have to lie, and they let him back in. Speaks Chinese and Mandarin without an accent. People would say, where did you learn this language? It's hard. And John would say, no, it's not hard. The children are all speaking it. <laughs> but the stories he told of that time were wonderful. But, he, but one thing, he was in one of the villages in China, and he was staying at the hotel there, and he had made an appointment to talk to the only Christian, an elderly lady, who was living in that town. Because of her faith in Christ, they'd given her a job, and the job was to clean the sewers. So he expected, he made this appointment, he expected an elderly, uh, decrepit old lady, and he waited in his room, and he heard this noise in the hallway, and it sounded like an elephant. Thump, 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 and then the door was open and this little lady was standing there and he got up to greet her and she said shut up <laughs> and he said okay she said pray and he said pray and she said yes just pray okay and so he bowed his head and he began to pray for china and for her and praise god 
And when he looked up, she was weeping, and she said, you're the real thing. Uh, you're my brother. You can tell, you can tell a lot about a man or a woman by listening to him or her pray. And I wish I had a week to spend on this prayer. I mean, it's so good, and there's so much there, and it's so profound, and it's so deep. But let me, let me just show you two or three things in this prayer. When you listen to Jesus pray, you learn his name. There are four times in that prayer when Jesus says, I have kept these, your disciples, in your name. And then later on, Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. A really interesting study in the Bible is a study of the power of names. When I was given my name, Stephen, I'm sure my parents said, um, that sounds good. And my daddy said, I think that's in the Bible. Let's call him Stephen. But that's not true in the Bible. If you read about Jacob and his struggle with God slash angel, what did he want before he would let the angel go? I want to know your name. Why did he want to know his name? Because the name is the essence of all that is, the covenant name of God. Moses said, who are you and what's your name? They're going to ask me when I go and talk to Pharaoh and them, what's your name? God said, I am. And Moses said, it's not in the text, but he's a friend of mine. Say, what? I am. The names that you see, if you read Hosea, for instance, the children of Hosea reflect the name and the essence of what's going on. And then when you move into the New Testament, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then you move into Revelation, and we're all going to have a new name in heaven. Your name's not your name. Jonathan, that's not your name. Your real name you're going to find out in heaven. Mine's going to be handsome. <laughs> Maybe your name will be faithful or patient or love. But we have a new name in heaven. And it's interesting as you... You know, it seems kind of weird to 21st century Christians. I kept them in your name. I kept them in your name. I guarded them in your name. Jesus says that over and over again. And then you begin to realize what's going on here. The name is the essence of the reality and the presence of the thing that is named. And so when you know Jesus' name, when, you, when he invokes and protects by the name of God, that is God. That's God's presence. That's who God is. That's what God does. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That means that it wasn't a nice thing that Jesus did. He came himself. He was the essence of what he did for you. Redemption isn't just a work. It's a presence. Everybody in this room has a secret right now that if you were required to stand up and share it with everybody else, you'd leave because you'd be so embarrassed. 
You're covered. You're forgiven. Never revisit it. It's over. And that will be true tomorrow as it was yesterday. Then you look at Jesus and listen to him pray. You see, if you listen to a man or a woman pray, you, you get to see uh, the pain and also the joy. If you listen to me pray uh, in the morning, I get up early, a lot earlier than you do. I get up at four. That's because I'm more spiritual than you are. <laughs> it's coffee and Jesus, and I'm not sure what's the most important. Um, sometimes Jesus comes and we have a delightful time. Other times I play solitaire. Sometimes God never answers, and sometimes he does. And sometimes I weep before him with the people that I love who are in such pain. Sometimes I weep for the church. Sometimes I weep for the church that I attend because of the people that are so wounded and going through so much. Sometimes I weep for me. Sometimes I feel so insecure and so out of it, I just go. But sometimes I want to speak in tongues. I get so excited. <laughs> no, I don't. But let me ask you a question. If you're really sick, do you want a Calvinist or a Charismatic to pray for you? <laughs> Enough said. There are times when I want to, if I knew how to dance, I would jump up. Sometimes I'm so overwhelmed with the joy. Well, Jesus had that too. Notice he prays for his disciples and the pain they're going to face because they're staying and he's leaving. And his heart is just poured out to them. Protect them from the evil one. Don't let old Slewfoot lie to them. Keep them close to yourself. Make them strong and make them dangerous. He knew the evil and the pain, but he also knew the joy. Three times in the prayer he says, I'm going home. And I want these that I love to be with me so they can see what's really cool. So they can see what it was like from the foundation of the earth. They did their worst. They drove nails into his hands and feet and spit on him. Platted a crown of thorns and pushed it down on his forehead. Kicked him and made fun of him. And that was the king. And someday we'll be with him. And I'm going to stand by Jonathan and I'm going to go. Is he something else? Does he shine or what? My brother is in heaven now. He died when he was in his 40s. He was the district attorney in the 28th Congressional. My father used to say, I have one son who's a preacher and one who's a lawyer. There's no problem I have that one of them can't get me out of it. <laughs> My brother would have literally been the governor of North Carolina if he'd lived, and then he died. I ran his media campaign, and he won every precinct except one against an incumbent. It was amazing. The only good thing about his death is that he was a Democrat, so there's one less Democrat around. <laughs> and the second thing is, he, I'm kidding if you're a Democrat, okay? But I'm not. I'm, uh, 
but I ran his campaign. I used to go to his Democratic rallies, and uh, I used to sit in the back and watch my brother speak, and I wanted to, I wanted, I wanted to jump up and say, hey, is he something else? It, tell me, is he something else? That's my brother. That's my kid brother, and I, and I am just, and I'm with him. That's what we're going to do when we get home. We really are. We're going to see things that you, you know, we see the cross, even watching Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. No, I don't want to watch that once. I've got people who own it. What are you, crazy? <laughs> Jesus did it once. You watched it once. That's enough. But, but I, I, um, when, but that didn't show half of it. There was a cosmic thing going on on Calvary. An amazing battle you can't imagine. And that was true everywhere Jesus was. And the veil will be lifted, and we're going to stand before the throne. And I'm going to say, doesn't he shine? Now, let me give you a principle. You can tell uh, darkness is dark in direct proportion to how much you've seen the light. Dark is dark in direct proportion to how much you've seen the light. You've got to remember that Jesus left total light, perfection, glory of the throne, and entered what C.S. Lewis calls the silent planet, the dark place. And if it's bad for you, you don't know nothing. Jesus knew. Two blind men, one had a sign that said, I'm blind, and the other said, I'm blind, and once I could see. He got the money because people know that darkness is dark in direct proportion to how much you've seen the light. And so Jesus coming from the light into the world that was fallen and sinful and needy and painful, he knew it far more than we can even imagine. But let me tell you something else. Joy is joy and light is light in direct proportion to how much you've seen the darkness. And so you kind of get, you, you kind of get as you read this prayer, Jesus, and he keeps saying it, I'm going home. <laughs> I've got to go through this cross thing, but I'm going home. And he knew, because he had seen the depths of our darkness and the world's darkness, and, and he would no light again, the light from the foundation of the earth. You can tell a lot about a man uh, or a woman by listening to him or her pray. There's another thing here that you can see his heart. If you listen to a man pray or a woman pray, you'll know their heart. Mothers always pray for their children. Monica, Augustine's uh, mother was told by her confessor when she worried about her son the child of so many prayers cannot be lost my mother read spurgeon in the morning and the bible in the evening she taught me how to cuss in between most earthy christian i've ever known and i i i don't have no idea why i'm doing what i'm doing this morning this is insane except for a mother's prayers listen to a mother pray she prays for her children you can tell where the heart is by listening to a man or a woman pray. Speaking of my mother, uh, 
we were with her when she died. She was really earthy. I mean, she used to bring homeless people in before anybody knew they were homeless. She one time went to a hospital for the insane to visit a friend and decided the people in that hospital were not crazy. So she got a lawyer and got them all out. <laughs> Dear friend, they were crazy as bedbugs. And they all showed up at our door. My mother, I, I mean, you just didn't met. She wasn't subtle. She would say, you're going to do it my way or I'm going to break your face. And she would. She lived with a drunk father. It was a hard life. And she was strong. Uh, she, she, she always tithed. Never cheated God. She cheated IRS. Well, kind of. She would at the end of the year, she'd send a check and not sign it. And by the time they got it back to her and told her she couldn't sign it, she had the money in the bank. Uh, and she affected my life deeply. And she wanted to live in the house in the mountains of North Carolina, and she wanted to die there. And her physician was a friend of mine, and we had a deal that when she couldn't do it anymore, we would come and get her. And we had a place in our house that, that was separate, and she would have loved it. And, but the hurricane came and blew it away. So right after Hurricane Andrew, we got a call from her doctor saying, Steve, she can't do this anymore. You've got to come get her. And I thought, what are we going to do? So I resigned from the seminary. I don't need the job, as you said. <laughs> uh, I, and I uh, resigned from everything. I took a tape recorder and, and did our radio program from the back porch and worked with computers and faxes to try to keep the ministry going. For three months, uh, we were there with my mother as she died. I, it was a hard time. Oh, my. I, I did things sons don't expect to do. Uh, but it was a, an amazing, wonderful time, too. She died with such grace. Uh, I wanted to go out in the streets and get pagans and say, hey, come with me. I want you to see a godly woman die. All of her friends came by, and she told them she loved them and prayed for them. My nephew, Jeff, and his girlfriend, he, she called them into her dead, right by her deathbed and said, uh, you love each other? <laughs> and Jeff said, yes, ma'am. And his girlfriend said, yes, ma'am. said, well, hold hands. So they held hands. She said, now get married. Don't screw around, okay? <laughs> she, man, she was in your face the whole time. And uh, I was by her bed. She went into a coma. And, I was, and I've done this with maybe a thousand others. But I was holding her hand when she died. And she went so softly uh, as the plane landed nicely. I thought, she said things to me. Uh, over those three months that I had wanted her to say all my life. I was on her heart, and her grandchildren were on her heart, and she thought about them a lot. And my mother, as she died, was thinking about us. That's what Jesus was doing. When this, the 17th chapter of John is right before the cross. Right before, I mean, this is not a little thing. This is going to be awful. And if you think Jesus was happy about it, you're not reading the synoptic gospels and what they said Jesus felt in the garden. He didn't want to do this. 
He was scared the way you're scared, and he knew how horrible it was going to be. And Mel Gibson only came that close to it. Not, I mean, it was a lot worse than that. And Jesus is facing it. Man, I would be, I'd be trembling. I would ask for Prozac. I'd be doing, not, Jesus is getting ready to die, and he thought about you. Jesus, at the moment of his passion, had you on his heart. That blows me away. It just blows me away. Shh. Jesus is praying. There's a wonderful verse in the seventh chapter of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. That means... He's praying for you. You're on his prayer list. And so as you read the 17th chapter of John, you see the focus of it and the joy and the pain and the name. And then one other thing. Shh. He's praying for you. You think about that. 